Welcome to the A Jesus Church podcast. We're a family seeking to become like Jesus, empowered by His presence to partner in God's creative work of restoring the world. We pray this episode encourages and equips you along the journey. Welcome, welcome, welcome to AJC. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to be doing a Bible study here this morning. So if you need a Bible, go ahead and put your hand up in the air. Uh, One of the men or women around the room with a Bible would love to put one in your hand. Uh, And if you don't have it, you're welcome to keep this Bible as a gift from us to you. When you get it, or if you have your phone in front of you, go ahead and flip to Genesis. It's right in the beginning. We're going to be looking at Genesis 3 today. Last, uh, last week, we started a new kind of short series leading up to Easter called The Story. Uh, Richard did an amazing job. Didn't he, for all of you that are last, he did a great job last week. It was so good. Setting the stage for us, helping us see this season, that season that we often call Lent, uh, as, as a time to prepare our hearts for the pivotal moment of the Christian story, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Um, In many ways, Lent is to Easter what Advent is to Christmas. There's this pastor in the the UK, his name's Pete Hughes. He he says this phrase quite often, the story we live in is the story that we live out. That is to say, we're all characters in a story. We are all a part of a narrative that's being told either inadvertently or on purpose. And it's imperative, it's important that we anchor ourselves in the right story because it helps us know where we fit, helps us know what our role is, helps us prepare ourselves to be who God has called us to be. So to prepare our hearts for Easter coming up here in a couple few weeks, we are going to do three things. First, we're going to refresh our vision of God and who he is towards us. Second, we're going to receive what he says is true about us and about this story that we find ourselves in. And then third, we're going to reshape our reality and our expectations around his truth. And we're going to do that by anchoring ourselves in the story of God. Richard laid out kind of like four scenes or four acts of a play that this story is. And the, and the first one is creation. The second one is fall. The third one is redemption. And the fourth one is new creation. Last week, in the first act, we met the first and most important character in our story. He's also the author. Um, His name is God, okay? Uh, And we learned that he is a creative. I mean, he is like the creative of all creatives. When he creates something, it literally comes to life. He is the perfect creator. Uh, He is an incredible, he's so good at doing good things. In fact, everything that comes out of him is good. He is good and he creates and does good things. We're also introduced to a good creation and the pinnacle of that creation, us. God creates us as his good image bearers and calls us to go and spread his goodness everywhere. And then he steps back and he he looks at the work of art and he says, this is very good. If only that was where our story ended. Tragically, we live in a world that tells a very different story, doesn't it? Filled with chaos, pain, suffering, country music. Something, something has shifted. My wife just rolled her eyes. I could actually hear them rolling. Uh, 
something shifted. And that something takes place in this act that we're talking about, this act of the story, which means I get the joy of talking about the tragic plot twist. Please stand as I read out from Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Genesis 3, verse 1 says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent, he deceived me and I ate. Lord, we come to you uh, this morning kind of in the steps of our ancestors. And we ask right now, Lord, even before we jump into this text to hear from you, to learn from you, that you would even now silence the enemy's voices. Would we only see you? Give us eyes to just see you. Give us ears to just hear your voice today. We want to see you in our story. We want to hear your voice every single moment. Help us, Lord, to make sense of the broken bits that we see all around us. Good creator, show us yourself today, we pray. Teach us, Lord. Amen. You may grab a seat. Any uh, literary or English majors in the room? Anybody out there? I know last, last gathering, I was like, Weston, good, good to see you, man. Uh, last gathering, there was like one person. I know it's that really common degree that everybody goes for. Um, but, you know, any of us that have been in college, we've taken English classes or high school even, we've taken English classes. We know that all stories have key elements to them. There is an author uh, who creates a plot and in the midst of kind of the early stages of the story, he sets out like a setting and key characters. He creates a mood. And all of this is a part of this like introductory exposition. Often we see that there's like rising action and falling action and some sort of climactic event that happens in the middle and then some sort of resolution at the end. What makes act two 
of this story. So significant is that we are introduced to a couple of very key elements that help explain why we are here wearing clothes. I don't know if you noticed. Why, why it is that we're struggling with like taxes, right? Because taxes season's just around the corner. Why it is that we're dealing with weather that can't seem to make up its mind? And of course, all of our broken March Madness brackets. <laughs> Something has shifted in our story. Um, and Genesis 3 is where that all began. This story around the tree of knowledge and good and evil, it acts as our like inciting conflict. It's the kind of the key element that introduces us to the story. It's the moment, this first moment where the, where the key characters are tested and challenged. Are they going to be who they were created to be? Tragically, the answer is no, but more on that in a moment. But we're also, we're also introduced to the main villain of the story, a serpent. And we're not told a lot about him, but we're left with some very important aspects of his character or lack thereof. And then finally, we're also introduced to the main hero of the story, the serpent crusher. See verse 15. We know even less about him, but it's clear that the storyteller wants us to catch this. There's more coming. We're going to learn more about this guy eventually. Keep your eyes open and your ears open. Now, what's interesting is how we understand this moment in the Bible in Genesis 3. It affects how we think about our role in human history. Humankind makes this tragic choice and literally changes the entire trajectory of all creation. But remember, like, remember everything up until this point had been very good. Adam and Eve occupied a unique place of, of, of leadership and, and, and a unique place of like image bearers, creators, co-laborers alongside God to nurture and develop and, and to create new things for the glory of God on this planet. And then just one chapter later, we begin a downward slide into darkness. Brother murders brother. There's a twisting of sexuality, an increase in violence and idolatry till it seems that human by chapter 11 is going to storm the very gates of heaven and try in a very futile attempt to dethrone God. And now we sit on our side of history and we look back and it can be difficult for us to see that original call, our original place in the garden as God's partners. I mean, we look and it seems like we're kind of responsible for doing a lot of the exact opposite that we were called to do. But I want to be clear, before we even jump into the text, the author of Genesis does not paint a picture of Adam and Eve as the villains of the story. They're actually painted as naive, even gullible prey. They're prey. And they are being hunted by an enemy. And it's important that this is clear in our mind because this affects how we think of how we view Easter and how we view Jesus and how we view ourselves and our calling and who we were meant to be. You see, 
One of the ways that we get our place wrong in this story is we, is we begin to believe like this character or like the flannel graph version of the story. Yes, humans became enemies of God, but we never stopped being his kids. Yes, our story did become one of increasing violence and idolatry, but he never stops seeing us as potential partners. So, with that in mind, let's dive into the text. Verse one, the serpent was more crafty than all of the other wild animals the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. Okay. So let's address the, the talking snake in the room. It's kind of the other version of the, of the elephant in the room, right? But actually, on second thought, my advice would actually be to never talk to a snake. I mean, doesn't that seem very commonsensical? It's just my take. That's a freebie. Take it for what it's worth. In all seriousness, though, I, I know that this can be an obstacle for people. Imagining a reality where, where a serpent can talk, it can feel like a stretch for our modern sensibilities. And what, what sometimes happens is we write off the story just because we get stuck on this one, pop, this one part. But if I may, this is probably akin to trying to explain to a person from the 1900s about a day where we would be able to get into the belly of a steel bird and fly through the sky at hundreds and hundreds of miles per hour. I mean, imagine somebody from the 1900s hearing that. Well, how, what would they do with that? Or trying to explain somebody from the 1900s an iPhone, trying to do FaceTime with people on the opposite side of the planet. It would be really difficult to explain, to, to bring detail in, because context makes sense of reality. Our context it helps make sense of our reality. And here's the thing. We don't have a lot of context for what's happening in Genesis 3. We just don't. We don't know the whole story. All we get is just a limited amount of detail that the author provides for us. And so what we need to do is focus on the details we're given. What's important that we not miss, what the, what the author is trying to drive home is that the serpent is a trickster. He's, he's a liar. He's clever, deceptive, manipulative. His first words, literally, did God really say? I mean, you put him up against, you juxtapose him with God himself. God, everything coming out of his mouth is just good. Good, very good. He makes things good. The serpent's words, did God really say? In a world of yes, this tree literally represented the only no. It represented the one place in creation where God was saying, like, I want you to be dependent on me. I'm going I'm to talk you through what good and evil looks like. Don't go to the tree. Go to me. In a world full of yeses, this was the only no. The serpent's questions prod at the idea that God's words, they might just be unclear or confusing, or maybe they're up for conversation. And you know, not much has changed. 
The serpent's voice is still as prevalent as ever. And it may sound really different, a lot like maybe things coming up on your Instagram or Twitter account, but they're, they're still there. Did God really say, honor your mother and father? Yeah, but my parents are like so old fashioned, they just don't get it. And actually my parents haven't done anything to earn my honor or respect So I'm sure that's not what God was saying. Did God really say not to look lustfully on another person? Well, but God doesn't, God didn't know when he said that who I would be sitting beside at work. I mean, it's really hard. Did God really say forgive those who hurt you? Yeah, but God, God couldn't know what that person took away from me. God couldn't know the profound level of pain that person has caused me. There's no way God would ask me to do that. Did God really say? The enemy starts by putting God's words out onto the table, like dumping over a scrabble board and starts rearranging the pieces. But he doesn't stop there. Verse four goes on. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The the enemy moves from, from the words and the content of God's command and he begins questioning God's intent and motives. He reframes the words on the table, suggesting to them that maybe, uh, maybe God was holding back on them, that he really, he didn't actually have their best in his mind, which leads to the inevitable next question. Is God really good? I mean, everything that we know about God is that he's good. And what's the serpent going after? I don't know if you can trust him. And what's more, another temptation comes to the table. A temptation which the serpent himself even struggles with. The temptation to be like God. Which is crazy, right? Because Adam and Eve already were like God. I mean, they already bore his image. They already carried in them the capacity to change the world in which they lived and make it good just like their father. The serpent, maybe out of jealousy, he simply reframes that understanding of God or who they are or what their purpose was. And they bit like a trout on a well-placed fly. That was for you, Scott. And so the woman and the man, they take the fruit and they eat it. And their eyes are opened to good and evil on their own terms. Death and shame enter our story. And we start looking for cover because that's what you do when you feel exposed. And again, not much has changed, right? I mean, the serpent continues to twist and twist and twist the words of our loving father, calling into question intent, calling into question his motives, whether it's sexuality, whether it's material stuff, identity, how we should respond to our enemies or who is our neighbor, 
All of it has been moved around on the Scrabble board. Society no longer trusts that there is a good father who desires good for us. And now, just like Adam and Eve, we want to take the fruit, get as much as we possibly can, however we can, because God, if he's actually out there, is holding out on us. And then we read Genesis 8, Genesis 3, 8. And the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And we have been hiding ever since. Hiding from God, hiding from each other. This story is so tragic because literally in the exact moment that we read about the failure of humankind, we also learn about the true nature of their relationship with God. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And I don't know about you guys, but, but there is something in that imagery that literally touches the very soul of my humanity. Some profound, deep-rooted, almost like a, a holy nostalgia. It, it kind of reminds me of that feeling for any of the parents in the room. You first walk when your kids are little. They don't do this anymore. But when they're little... And you walk in the door and they just come running, daddy, 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 we're so glad you're home. And any of the parents in the room, you know that feeling. This, this is the picture that's, that's presented to us of a loving father out in his glorious, amazing garden that he's handcrafted for his children. Out for a stroll in the best part of the day waiting for that moment. Kids, let me show you this new plant that just started to sprout over here. There's this crazy creature I just invented. It's got like the face of a duck and the body of a beaver. I think you should call it a platypus. You can imagine God walking through the garden with his kids at his, at the, at his knees, walking forward describing and explaining, helping them understand why they're there, helping them understand what this is all about, where they're going, what the future could look like. This is the perfect picture of a loving father. I've often, I've often wondered to myself, what does the sound of God walking in the garden sound like? I think it's probably like, it's probably so wired into our soul that if we heard it, we would know. And probably on some level, we're all longing, waiting to hear it again. It's that missing thing, that itch that we can never scratch, that feeling in the back of our mind, like we're missing something. We're missing something. And now, and now they're hiding, afraid of God, afraid of being exposed. And we begin to learn what God meant by death. And what comes next is often called the curse. 
in the story. Though interestingly, even, even if you dig down a little bit into the curse, so often we reframe that as understanding like we've been cursed when in reality it was the, it was the devil that was cursed and the ground that we walked on that was cur- cursed. And our understanding of that has different implications. I encourage you, go back, read through it. You will not see it. You will not see the line that says God cursed Adam and Eve. It's not there. And in a moment of compassion, we are driven from the tree of life, from the garden, having to live with the consequences of our sin. I think as as we struggle with, as we wrestle with the reality of act two, we we come face to face with the fruit of taking the fruit. And that is broken relationships. Four, four specifically, four relationships that are, are twisted, broken from this moment moving forward. The first is kind of the most apparent. It's, it's the relationship between God and human, between a father and his kids. It's not incidental that Gen- Genesis mentions that Adam and Eve were naked and without shame. The biblical use of the idea of nakedness. You've got to remember, like, Hebrew culture was very modest by its nature. It was, it was the idea of being completely exposed. The idea that we were completely open to God. There was nothing hidden. He knew our motives. He knew who we were. He could see into our deepest being, and we were completely open with each other. We knew each other fully. This is so core to human identity. Our struggle to be known for who we really are is central to so many of the decisions that we make for good or for bad. How many relationships get stepped into in our struggle to be known? How many choices, decisions do we make in our struggle to be known? past all of our facades and cultural baggage, past all of the expectations and false images that we've been given about ourselves, past all of the shame that we have been carrying since the garden. You know, sometimes we imagine God as like either kind of like this grumpy old guy up in heaven waiting to like throw lightning at us, or like a robot that just didn't have any emotions and neither of those are true. The weight of this, of this end of of the beginning of Genesis is one of parental life. God is a good emotionally invested father. And how do we know this? How do we know that he cared for and loved his kids so much? Well, Genesis six tells us that when we sinned, we broke God's heart. And the word that gets used in the Hebrew is like the literal word for pain. We caused God pain. We hurt him. Now, we were tricked for sure, but we chose to follow the enemy and the consequences was death and shame. And we were separated from him. But the second relationship is that it also broke our relationship with each other. And blame entered our story. Isn't it crazy how quickly we jump on the blame train? It's amazing. Adam, he's he's quite gifted here. In one sentence, he literally blames God and Eve. It was the woman you gave me. Right? 
I mean, so quickly passing the buck. And again, something that we still do. The inability to take responsibility and inability to own our mistakes, but to shove them over. I'm sure there's no husband in this room that has ever done anything like that. Our nature shifts from one of interdependent love and giving the best of ourselves to each other and the mission of God to attacking and blaming. And we drift into this kind of survival of the fittest mentality. The third relationship that gets broken, it's it's fascinating, is a relationship between human and the earth that we lived on. I mean, there's some really fascinating implications for the fall in this area. Like literally, our relationship with the dirt. Adam literally means taken from the dirt. That's what, it, that's what his name meant. It becomes frustrated and uphill. Our natural tendency shifts from protection and nurture and cultivation to abuse and misuse. It's kind of a crazy mental game to imagine what it would look like if we still had that relationship with creation. A place where we came with authority and, and as princes and princes Princesses of the kingdom ruled well. A world that would produce abundance instead of frustration. Imagine this last week of work. If everything that you had put your mind to and your heart to succeeded. I bet your job would be a little bit more fun. Right? Or maybe not. Maybe your guys' work week is just like stellar all the time. My last week would have been a lot more fun. I'm just going to say. And that's the reality of it. Like, We were intended to to coexist, to bring about goodness out of the soil. Its response to us was supposed to be abundance and life. My garden would look so much better, right? But the fourth relationship that broke was our relationship to our purpose, our why for being here in the first place. Outside of our relationship with God, this is perhaps the most significant shift that took place in us as people. We were created as expressions of God's purpose on this planet to create beauty and form civilizations that reflected the heart of God, to build, to cultivate, to transform raw materials in this planet to a glorious, vibrant temple for the glory of God most high. Remember, God created us for partnership. And when we're at our best, we do that well. But then we took the fruit. And we've become a little like a compass that's been dropped too many times. It occurred to me in the last gathering that many of us have never even seen a real compass in real life. For those in the room that haven't, it's like a little metal circle with a little thing inside of it. And here's the reality for the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts in the room. It's like if you drop it too many times, that needle stops being able to find north. I suppose if you dropped your phone that many times, it would also happen. But, but the reality is, is that you can't trust the compass anymore because it doesn't know how to find north. That's what's happened with us. We struggle to live up to the potential that we can feel in our bones. We know that something is missing and we yearn for it. Something about our purpose. Instead of being partners, we became usurpers and enemies. Naive children tricked by a wretched villain. If only there was a hero. 
As I hinted at earlier, in act two, in chapter three, we also get the flicker, the nuance, the, the allusion to one who will come. Someday, a seed of the woman or one of her children would come and crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent was biting his heel. And that bite, it would be deadly, but there are parts of the story that Adam and Eve don't know that we do. Their rescuer was coming and our rescuer has come. And it's here at this point that we remember the point behind our series. Preparing our hearts for the reality of Easter, the reality of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It was, it was about bringing healing to those broken relationships. It was about bringing life and restoring life and dealing with shame and dealing with blame. But it was also about bringing a champion to the battlefield. Jesus, our Christus Victor, more than just the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world, he is also the lion. He is also the conqueror, the one to go to war against the enemy. Lent is often a time of remembering the wilderness trial where Jesus, the, the living word of God, went into the desert to fight with Satan. I mean, it's, the gospel writer literally says that Jesus was driven by the Holy Spirit to go do battle. But why is that important? And why is it important for us to understand what that means as we sit in this posture waiting on Easter? Well, I thought in light of how well the visuals went last week, that I might do another visual for us today. Is everybody okay with that? Is everybody okay? That's why I got these chairs up on the, on the, the, the uh, stage here. And I want to tell a version of the gospel that but many of you might be kind of familiar with. And it's a version of the story that goes something like this. There is God, who's a very good creator. And he does a bunch of really amazing things. And he's holy and he's set apart. And he stands on high above all of those things. And beautifully true. And he creates humankind, who... I wish this chair could be a little bit smaller, but it's, it's much smaller, obviously, but is also an image bearer, resembling him. And, and the two of them sit in union together in relationship with each other until human makes a bad decision, decides to listen to a talking snake and turns away from God. And God in his holiness sees rebellion and sin and goes, I can't, I can't do, deal with that. And pulls away. And says, I have to be separated from you. But Jesus comes on the scene and he is distinctly unique. One part, 100% human, 100% God brought together into one perfect sacrifice. He, the, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, lays himself out to purchase back for God a people. And so God turns and looks at his son, and instead of seeing our sin, sees his son 
And Jesus calls us back and puts his spirit in us and makes us his children again. Does this look familiar? This is a beautiful version, vision of the gospel, and it is deeply true, and there's so much theologically correct about this. But, like a diamond, if you take the diamond and just turn it a little bit, there is more in the gospel. And when we read a gospel version of what happens in Genesis, the story is slightly different. In this story, God, glorious in power, creates for himself an image bearer who is like him to go and take his goodness and spread it out over all of the universe. But along comes an enemy. An enemy who is different and distinct and represents death and represents evil and the enemy tricks the human. Is that really what God said? Is that, is that really who God is? And turns the human's heart, winning him over and leading him away. And this is where the gospel story changes just a little. Again, same story, different angle. God does not turn his back on his children. Instead, God says, I know what I will do. I will send my son. I will send my son to go to war against the enemy of our soul. I will send my son to go and conquer evil and to defeat death. I will send my son to go remove shame, to remove blame, to create a new way, to create right relationship. I will send my son. In this gospel, there is never a moment where God in his glory turns his back on his children. Instead, he is a God that is a father that is always looking for his children. Like the sun waiting, coming up over the horizon as the father stands looking, waiting for his prodigal son to return. waiting to bring redemption and healing and restoration. And Jesus, in his power and his glory, he deals with the enemy. And on the cross, the battle begins and is won. Because Jesus kills death. Jesus goes to war against shame. Jesus creates healing. And he rescues us. And then he says, this is how you look like him again. Look at me. Look at me. And then he presents us to his father as a bride. And says, father, my bride is ready. It's the same story. But this story shows a God that never takes his eyes off you. You may think, you may be sitting in this room right now and you even had a father that walked away from you. We have a fatherless generation. And so the image of God turning his back on you, it actually connects with you better. I'm here to say to you that is not the God that we follow. We follow a God whose eyes are locked on you. 
and he loves you and he wants you back and he's not forgotten his purpose for you. And he's waiting to go for that stroll in the garden, the one that's deep inside of your soul. He's waiting for you. In the best part of the day, in the best part of the garden, because he loves you. Would you stand, please? Friends, if you're out there and you are, you struggle with believing that God might have big dreams for you, I want to encourage you, like, this morning, this afternoon, I want to encourage you to step into the story with hands open. God has a new version of you that he wants to give to you. He wants to remind you of who you were created to be. He wants to give you the identity that he designed you with. If you would, just bow your head. Lord, I pray right now for my friends. I thank you so much for your goodness and for the fact that that never wavered. I thank you so much for your love and the fact that that never wavered, even in the midst of your hurt, even in the midst of the rejection and the pain, even in the midst of the fact that we were the ones that walked away, you did not. And Lord, right now, we just say we want to be defined by you. We want to receive our identity, our purpose from you. So Spirit, fill us with more of you. Set our eyes on Jesus and remind us who our Father really is. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more resources and to partner with us through giving, visit us at thejesuschurch.org.